This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. We've got a great program for you today. In this episode, we find ourselves in the charming town of Independence, Oregon, located just south of Salem. I must say I adore the name of this place, Independence. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Miss Natasha Adams, who serves as the director of the Heritage Museum. By the time you finish listening to this episode, you'll be inspired to donate to their mission of preserving and sharing the rich natural history and cultural heritage of the independence community along the Willamette River, a truly peaceful and special place. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the original talk program on MicroStream Radio where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, just spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical October events for this episode. On October 1st, 1959, the first episode of Rod Sterling's Twilight Zone was copyright registered. On October 2nd, 1963, Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech was copyright registered. On October 7th, 1975, patent number 3,909,854 was granted to Ysidro Martinez for a knee implant prosthesis. That was in 1975. And now they're doing replacement knee implants. In fact, I know a lady I used to work with who, gosh, she's got to be just in her 50s, and she had both knees replaced the other day. Anyway, on October 23rd, 1877, a patent for a gas motor engine was issued to Nicholas Otto and Francis and William Crossley. That was in 1877. 
On October 24, 1836, Alonzo Phillips patented a friction match. wonder how they lit them before then. On October 24, 1861, the first transcontinental telegraph system was completed, making it possible to transmit messages rapidly from coast to coast. On October 30, 1888, a patent for a ballpoint pen was received by John Loud. Happy birthday to Louis Lemire on October 5, 1864. Louis Lemire made the first motion picture in 1895 invented camera equipment for making movies, and created a projector for viewing movies. Happy birthday to Henry Chadwick on October 6, 1824. Henry was a baseball pioneer who developed the first rule book for baseball. Happy birthday on October 6, 1846 to George Westinghouse, who was the inventor and businessman responsible for a commercial alternating current system. I'd like to thank ThoughtCo.com, which is the world's largest education resource for our historic events today. Let's drink some tea, some Twining's tea. That's good tea. All right, today we're going to talk with Ms. Natasha Adams. Natasha Adams holds a Master of Arts in Museum Studies from George Washington University and has accumulated over two decades of professional experience in various roles. Her diverse career paths ultimately led to her current position as the director of the Independence Heritage Museum. Welcome to the program, Natasha. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. How's it going today? Pretty good. How's your weather? Beautiful. Blue skies. It's a little chillier than it has been, but it's really nice. It was chilly here today, and it rained like crazy all night long. Oh, we have not seen rain in a long time. Yeah, I think we're going to have an early winter this this year. Last year, it snowed on October 23rd. Okay. I think it's going to snow a little earlier this year. (laughs) We're the very last to get snow if there's snow in Oregon, because we're in the valley, so... Now, Willamette, what's that all about? Who is Willamette? So it's Willamette. Oh, um, Willamette. Okay. And the settlers were calling it the Willamette River. So we tell our tourists that to help remember them how to pronounce it, we say Willamette, damn it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of t-shirts around here that say that on it. Oh, yeah, I imagine. I understand that Independence, Oregon is located in the Willamette Valley. I read that it's the second largest hop growing region in the United States, providing a quarter of our nation's hop production. When we were chatting earlier, I think you mentioned that you have some experience teaching people about hops. Since you're an expert, what are hops anyway, and how are they used in beer production? Well, hops are actually what brought me to the Willamette Valley. I started working for a brewery called Rogue Ales. And they were a little bit ahead of the game in that they were partnering directly with a hop farmer and they were actually leasing 40 acres from the hop farm to produce their own hops. So hops are green cone-shaped flowers and they're part of the hop plant, which is a perennial and it's a, it's a climbing plant. It's actually called a vine instead of a vine because it coils its way in the opposite direction that a vine does. 
And hops are used primarily for beer production. If you take a hop, you, they smell really great. And right now in September is our harvest season. Driving down the road, some fall off the trucks and us locals will pick them up and you can take a hop cone and they're very delicate, like a flower, but they look like a pine cone. And when you break it in half, there are these yellow, almost granules inside. And that's called lupulin. And the lupulin is what brings the flavor to a beer, but it also helps preserve the beer, which is why the IPAs are, are so bitter because they have more hops in them than, say, a lager. Okay. That's very interesting. And would a, would a beer like a, uh, what do you call those dark beers? Uh, like a, a stout or a porter? Yeah, a stout. You know, those really dark black beers? Yeah. Would they have hops? So that, the color of that doesn't come from the hop. There's, if you look at a beer can, it will list the IBUs, which is the International Bittering Unit. And it's a scale from one to 100. One being the least bitter, 100 being the most bitter. And so the color of the beer doesn't always indicate how many hops were in it. Generally speaking, the IPAs, the India Pale Ales are going to be your hoppiest beers. Fantastic. Are hops edible right out of the field like green beans? Um, theoretically, but some people will pick them and put them in their beer to give it more of a fresh hop flavor, but they don't taste very good. They're very bitter and are very grassy. So technically you can eat them. It's not going to hurt you, but it won't taste very good. Yeah. Okay. Sort of like that wheatgrass they sell in the health food stores. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, in addition to hops, I think that you guys also do a big business in wine, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah there okay. are probably 70 wineries within a 30 mile radius of where I am. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rough life. Yeah. We have lots of wine and lots of hazelnuts too. That's oh, a huge yeah. crop for us here. Oh. We have, I mean, the Willamette Valley is very fertile and known for being able to grow a lot of things. So grass seed, mint, when the mint is being harvested, it smells amazing. Wow. Um, lots of, and it's hazelnut season now. They're just starting to harvest those. So. Yeah, and I um, listen to a Bigfoot podcast from time to time and you have uh, uh -huh. lots of big feet up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If that's the plural, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Big feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. You live in a beautiful part of the country. You got a fantastic museum. And I'm just going to enjoy talking with you and learning more about it. I read an article that the Heritage Museum celebrated its reopening one year anniversary in April of this year. Congratulations. Thank you. What was going on with that? Why did you have to reopen? Um, so our museum was established in 1976, and from its inception, it was housed in an old Baptist church. And so even just from 1976 to 2020, that's a long time to be in a building. And then when you throw in the historic aspect of the building, it just was not holding our collection in the way that it should. And the building also was not accessible. And I'm talking beyond just wheelchairs, people with strollers or even a cane struggled to get into the building. There were really narrow stairs. And because our museum is part of the City of Independence, just like the library is, there was a big push from the Heritage Museum Society to get a new building. And so in 2019, 2020, this is before my arrival, the city purchased a building 
So it's new to us. The building is not new. It's a historic grocery store, but that does mean that the floors are concrete and level and it is fully accessible. And so the move was made. The Heritage Society did a lot of fundraising and contributed a lot of money towards that. And then the city also budgeted to purchase this new building. And so when I came in in October of 2021, there were boxes everywhere, cases everywhere, and just two pathways from the entrance of the building into the back of the building. Oh, my. And so between October of 21 and April of 22, my part-time curator, Amy, and I basically built the entire museum. And we did every, we redid every panel. We created all new exhibits which for someone in the museum world is very rare to get to do that. And it it was an incredible amount of fun <laughs> to get to put it all together, especially in such a small team, because we really just got to let our imagination and our creativity run wild with yeah. the historical facts that we had. That would be great. Did you have someone doing the art and that kind of thing, or did you do all of that? We did all of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Pretty cool. It's very cool. <laughs> yeah, but it really it. gives you a good opportunity as well, because especially in the previous museum, things hadn't changed very much, which tends to be a pattern, I think, with older heritage museums. And so for us, it was just this amazing opportunity to not only move our collection and make it safer, but to also think about how we want to tell our community's stories. And it just really opened up the door to basically recreating the vision and our values and how we were going to represent everybody in our community. And that's something that a lot of museums don't get to do. I mean, we really got to start from a clean slate. It was just an amazing experience. Plus you have to keep it crisp and you have to keep it moving. Yeah. All the time. I think there was an old radio program or maybe it was a television program. And I think it was called the Naked City, but its introduction was there are a million stories in the naked city. And that's kind of how a museum has to be as well. Yes, uh-huh, for sure. Independence is really a beautiful area of the country. You and I were talking about that earlier. It's absolutely beautiful in Oregon and Independence, especially in the Willamette Valley. What's the history of Independence, Oregon? You know, Independence itself was established in 1846. But prior to the city being here, the Kalapuya native inhabitants lived here, and they've been here since time immemorial. And they were here when the European settlers arrived. We are the end of the Oregon Trail. There's a lot of cities that claim that, but the Oregon Trail started in Independence, Missouri, and we are Independence, Oregon, which is the end of the Oregon Trail. So we had settlers here for quite some time. And then once the city was established, you know, Main Street was created, buildings were built. And as the stories go, the Kalapuya multiple times told the settlers that they were too close to the river. And of course, times being the way they were, the settlers thought they knew better. And then in 1861, the entire town was wiped out by a flood. And so they rebuilt a little bit further away from the river, yeah. and the town really has been thriving ever since. You know, and we are on the Willamette River, and Oregon has a very deep-rooted history in logging, 
And so a lot of logs came down the river here. The hops actually during that time would have been put on large boats and, and taken down the river. And so independence being a river community actually has quite a, a salacious history, which is actually one of my favorite things to research. But we we were at that time very much as I would imagine a Vegas to have been. We have two large, um, how would you call them, tower buildings. And one is on each end of Main Street. And it said that those were placed there so that the boats could easily find our docks to dock in to Independence. And there was a lot of gambling here. There was a lot of prostitution. We have many stories of women hanging out of the upstairs windows waiting for the folks to come off the river. And Independence really did have quite a rough reputation well into the 80s. And then there was some really intense economic revitalization efforts. And things really have, have turned around in the, in the last 40 years. And now we have a very quaint downtown. We're just 15 minutes from the state capitol. And we very much embrace our hop culture. We're also in wine country. And Oregon is the only state in the country that has a scenic bikeway. So we have designated highways for cyclists. And independence is part of that. So we actually get a lot of cyclists through town as well. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Do you still experience floods? I'm trying to think what year it was. It must have been mid-90s. There was a massive revitalization and a new amphitheater was built. And they built it in a way so that it could handle floods. So I would say every five to 10 years, the Willamette will crest. Um, and it actually fills in our amphitheater and park. Oh. And when that happens, um, you'll often see kayakers <laughs> kayaking through our downtown park. So they they really anticipated that. And the benches are all concrete blocks so that they don't move when it floods. It's not a regular occurrence, but it does still happen. Wow. Okay. Are there any specific challenges or opportunities unique to preserving heritage in independence? I think. You know, as the museum world starts to recognize that we have left some people out of the stories that we tell, especially with our move, as I mentioned earlier, there really has been this opportunity to re-examine whose stories we were telling and from what perspective we were telling those stories. So right now, our biggest challenge is creating trust with some of our community members so that they feel comfortable sharing their stories with us. I've been very clear in my time here that the stories and objects that are reflected in our museum very much come from one demographic. It's the wealthy white residents of our community. And we are very vocal about wanting to change that. And it's slowly happening, but you can't build trust overnight. And that's one of the biggest things here that we try to do is, is telling the stories that we know we can tell, and then figuring out how to get the stories that we don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's always a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Do you have migrant workers that come in to pick the hops every year? So we used to. The hop harvest actually in the 1930s to 50s, actually even earlier, like 1890s, we'd get 20,000 people come to town to pick the hops. Yeah. 
back then, it was very much also known as a working vacation. So this is one of the things I love about the hop history. And I very much think it's permeated into the culture of independence in that everybody picked hop. So we had very affluent Victorian women picking hops next to Native Americans, next to Mexicans, next to very poor, um, you know, local workers. Although they didn't all get paid the same wages, they were in the same place doing the same thing. And that is very unusual for that time period. And so when you come to independence, there is this genuine spirit of welcoming and very much this, we're going to figure out how to get this done. And I, I, I really believe that harkens back to our, our hop days. And so we, we don't necessarily have workers that come through for hop harvest, but we do for other things. So we grow a lot of hazelnuts. We are a huge producer of Christmas trees. And then outside of the valley, apples are really big. And all of those bring a lot of migrant workers through. Okay, cool. Very cool. There's some stories there, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. They're my favorite. <laughs> what are some lesser known facts or stories about independence's history that the museum helped to uncover? Yeah, so there's actually quite a few. One of the stories that I enjoy talking about, because as I mentioned earlier, truly my, my favorite thing to research is the topic of sort of vice and sin and the things that we really still don't like to talk about very much. But in the 1970s, we actually had a gentleman who was in one of the local establishments, the Hi-Ho restaurant, and he was born in Texas. He moved to Oregon as a child, and he was there just having lunch when three Polk County deputies and an independence policewoman came in and demanded that he prove his citizenship, which, you know, like most Americans, we don't carry a birth certificate with us to be able to prove that. They gave him a really hard time until the locals in the restaurant stuck up for him and said, no, he's lived here for a long time. He's part of our community. And this gentleman actually ended up suing, which took a lot of courage, I think. And he and his suit were really the catalyst to creating the sanctuary law that um, Oregon created in the 70s, which I is just for a small town like us, for that to be the catalyst of something so major, I, I think is is always a really interesting story to tell. Way ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. That's and cool. also just the, I mean, really, courage, I feel like, isn't even the right word for him to stick up for himself and to feel that he could sue, I, I think says a lot as well. Yep, absolutely. Well, one of my other stories that I really love, too, is we highlight a gentleman, his name was uh, Bill Matsuda, and he was a Japanese-American. He, too, was native to independence. He graduated from high school here, and his family owned almost a 200-acre hop farm. And then in, I think it was February of 1942, he registered for the draft to go, you know, fight in World War II, and he became part of the Army Air Corps. And then in June of that year, his family was actually taken from the farm while he was in the service and placed in a camp in Utah. And so uh, in the research that we've done, we know that they actually hired somebody to take care of the farm while they were away. But then when they came back after being released and after 
Mr. Matsuda finished up his time in the military, um, the farm was in such disarray that, that they had to sell it for pennies on the dollar. And again, it's an example, uh, Matsuda actually sued the federal government for a, a very large amount of money. And he was awarded money later on, which uh, at very much less than what he had asked for. But he too was really one of the first people to, to look at something that had happened and to you know take the injustice and do something about it. Yeah. And the reason I like telling the story, although it's a part of our history that, you know, is, isn't fantastic. It's, we're not proud of this. What I enjoy about telling the story is that it feels very full circle. You know, there's so much about history where we talk about a certain event and then we move on to talk about another event. And when it comes to Bill Matsuda and his story, it it's, you know, he was born and raised here and he fought for his country and he and his family faced an injustice. But then he he continued on and he was a very influential member of the community. And when you look at reparations and suing the federal government, and he actually did receive an apology, for me, I think is a good lesson to share with others that although we have things in our history that maybe we aren't proud of, we can move beyond that and find ways to learn from it and hopefully, you know, make the future better from the history that we've learned. So this story really highlights that, I think. Absolutely. And it was an injustice. And that's what America is all about, is the freedom to stand up for what you believe in. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a good thing. And, you know, I think there may have been injustices done in the name of, quote, public safety, unquote, during the COVID pandemic where we may have repeated some of that historical governmental overreach here in the 21st century. I noticed two things right away about the outside of your museum. Mm -hmm. Number one, painted on the exterior wall are these circular portraits of flowers and birds, and each one has like a number on it. What's the significance of those? Yeah, so as I mentioned, our building is an old grocery store which for a collection is fantastic because there are no windows. So we have no sunlight that comes into our building. But that also meant we're on a corner. So along one of the streets, we just had this big empty wall. And because we had recently moved, even though we had a giant sign outside that said museum, we would get a lot of feedback of it's really hard to find you. The building doesn't look like a museum. And so we really tried to think about what can we do to make our building, quote, feel more like a museum, but also add to the downtown. And part of our mission is to talk about the natural history of this area. And to be quite honest, we're not very good at that. We haven't done a lot of that within the walls. So this was an opportunity for us to embrace that part of our mission. And so all of those pictures of animals and plants are native to the Willamette Valley. And so there are two rectangular panels, one on each end. So the beginning one tells you about what it is. And then each circle has a number by it so that when you have finished walking down the wall, the last panel is a key so that you can figure out what the things are. We really wanted it to be somewhat interactive. And we really felt like both 
kids and adults would enjoy trying to guess what some of the plants and animals are. And so um, it, it really was a lot of fun. And they're, they're metal panels that we screwed to the wall. So they'll last for a really long time. Um, and it really has added to the downtown. And <laughs> one of the unforeseen circumstances in a good way is that traffic has drastically slowed down our road because folks are trying to look at them um, <laughs> while they're driving. So oh, very uh, cool. it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. That's very cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. I also noted there's train rails running down the street that are really close to your museum. Do trains go by from time to time? They do. So that train track is for freight trains. So with freight trains, they don't release the schedule of when they are going to travel. So we never know when the train is going to go by. And it does very much rattle the building. And if we do have visitors, a lot of times they'll go outside to see the train go by. And it's it's really loud. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. I'd like to provide the contact information for the Heritage Museum. You can find their website at www.orheritage.org. They're on Facebook as Independence Heritage Museum. And the Society, the Heritage Museum Society, is also on Facebook as Heritage Museum Society. Their address is 281 South 2nd Street, Independence, Oregon. Their phone number is 503-838-4989. You can email them at orheritage at ci.independence.or.us. Admission to the Heritage Museum is always free, so go on down and see it, and donations are gratefully accepted. The museum is open Tuesday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and closed on Sunday and Monday. that all sound correct? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, fantastic. Could you kindly share with the audience the variety of your visitors and the mission and objectives of the museum? Yeah, so since we opened our doors in April of 2021, we are really close to having served almost 7,000 visitors. And those visitors are from all over the country. They are locals. They vary in, in age. They vary in school districts. We serve six different school districts. We've had um, lots of school groups come through and we'll specialize tours for certain groups. And so obviously the visitors are very important to what we do. And one of our big pushes right now is to encourage the school groups to come more. And we have volunteers that we've trained and curriculum that we've created. If we have a really large school group, then we'll enlist some of the other local nonprofits in the area to help us provide programming. You know, so many of the school groups don't go on field trips anymore because it's so costly. And because our museum is free, we tend to get a lot of school groups. And initially, we were going to keep our school group numbers really low, like in the 30s. But we quickly realized that the expense for the schools is also the school bus. And so we really quickly pivoted and tried to figure out how to accommodate really large school groups. Uh, we've had up to 80 children in our very tiny museum. And we do that by splitting them into multiple groups. We utilize the park that's a block away, and we kind of have them doing different things. We have a volunteer that comes in and teaches them fiber arts and 
shows them a spinning wheel and she teaches them how to make string. And then the teachers have a have a choice on what part of Oregon or independence history they want us to teach. And then, you know, our mission really, it, we focus primarily on independence history. We have another museum in the county, the Polk County Museum, and they are, are much more broad in their mission. And, and sometimes it's hard because we only focus on independence, but that really does allow us to hone in on our mission. Yeah. And for anyone who's ever worked in collections, we all know that folks love to come by and say, hey, I have this old thing and I don't want it anymore, but I think you as a museum would love to have this old sewing machine. And it's always so heartbreaking to turn things down because you don't have storage. But for us, if we, you know, we can very quickly say, well, how does it relate to independence? And if they say, oh, it doesn't, it was my grandmother's in San Francisco, then we can say, well, I so appreciate <laughs> you wanting to help us with our collection, but you know that's not something that we can take on. And that does really help us figure out and maintain our collection in, in a much better way than, than if our mission were broader. Yep, makes absolute sense. I like the work you're doing with school children. That's great. Yeah, I come from an outdoor school background. Um, and so uh, for quite a few years, I ran an outdoor school for the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. And um, I think especially now with budgets being as tight as they are, getting kids through the museum is, is vital. And because we're free, um, we're finding more and more that a school group will come. And then on the weekend, the children come back with their parents because they've been raving about it so much that the parents say, okay, well, we'll go on Saturday. And and I, I'm really proud of that, that, that the nice. kids are so happy <laughs> to have been in our museum that they convince their parents to come back a few days later. Are there any upcoming exhibitions or events that the community should look forward to coming up in the museum? Yeah, we actually have quite a few things coming up. And when I wrote my list down, I was surprised myself of all the things that are going to be happening in the next couple months. We have a rotating exhibit area, and we try to change that up every month to every other month. So in early October, we'll have the Oregon Historical Society's traveling exhibit, which is A Century of Wonder, 100 Years of Oregon State Parks. And it features Peter Marbach photography in what he did when it was the 100-year anniversary of Oregon State Parks. He went to all the Oregon State Parks and took photographs. And so this exhibit highlights that. And he himself will be here on November 9th at six o'clock to do a Meet the Artist event, which is always fun. October 7th is our ghost walk. This happens every first Saturday in October. It's in its 20th plus year. Um, the ghost walk really has been a huge community event for independence for many years. And this year is the first year that it's become part of the museum programming. So because I can't help myself, we added to it a little bit. So the ghost walk itself happens from seven to nine at night, and we'll get anywhere from a thousand to 1500 people coming to downtown. Cool. It's free and they get a map and their map shows them where the ghost hosts are located. And these ghost hosts are volunteers. Some stay in their, quote, normal clothes, and others really embrace a character and dress up. 
And they tell ghost stories using historical facts and highlighting the building that they're standing in front of. And then this year, we've added a hearse car show into the mix. So we have a parking lot that's right by one of our banks. And that parking lot used to have the undertaker's building Mm. located in it. So in that parking lot, we'll have our hearse car show, which I'm super excited about. Fantastic. (laughs) And then the last thing to mention is our Heritage Museum Society uh, is there to support us. And they do fundraisers to help support the museum and the work that we're doing. And on October 20th at seven o'clock, they are having a fundraiser called Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. And they're actually going to have the old movie playing in the background. And then one of our local musicians, Nathan Jr., is going to play an organ and play the, the soundtrack to the movie while everyone enjoys their wine and charcuterie boards and and raising money for the museum. So it's an unusual event, but I think it'll be a lot of fun, especially to bookend the ghost walk, which happens at the beginning of the month. Very cool. A lot of spooky stuff going on. Yeah, we do love Halloween around here. (laughs) Do you have a lot of psychics that hang out in the area? (laughs) Um, We do have people that come and have their, and I'm going to butcher this, that they have their ghost meters and go around to the buildings. And yeah. Well, I hope they find some good ghosts. (laughs) Now, how do you envision the museum's role in the community evolving in the coming years? I think when people say Heritage Museum, it really conjures up this notion of a a dusty place that houses old things that, you know, somebody cared about at some point and we just don't want to throw them away. For me, the, the biggest push in our evolution is to get folks to think about us more as a community museum. And we try really hard to not only tell the distant past history of our community, but we also focus on things that are happening right now and highlight those things. And of course, we pull information from the past. So an example of that would be, we just opened our first new permanent exhibit called the Ella Curran Feeding the Community exhibit. And our food bank is named after Ella. And so the food bank right now is really transitioning. They were given a lot of money by the legislature. They've had a massive fundraising campaign going on because they always rent their buildings. And so they tend to have to move around depending on which buildings are available and by how many people they're having to to help. You know, the more people in need, the bigger of a, a building you need to house the food that's going out into the community. And so We knew that the food bank was really impacting the community, especially with COVID. A lot of the stigma of needing to go to a food bank had been, has shifted, at least in our community. And during COVID and post-COVID, the amount of people that are going to the food bank has drastically increased. I think it's close to doubled. And and the food bank folks, although those numbers are, are startling, very much believe that those folks were in need prior to COVID, but just, you know, were either afraid or ashamed to go to the food bank. Hmm. So because we knew this campaign was happening for them to build a new building, we thought it would be a really great thing to highlight in our museum. So we dove really deep into Ella and her history. 
And the way she started was she would feed people out of the back of her car. So she would go and get green beans from the green bean farm and she would collect other foods. And then she would drive around and she would park her car and pop open the trunk and feed folks that needed food. And from there, the, the food bank really evolved and she actually passed away very unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And she was only in her 40s. And so then when the food bank became its own nonprofit, they named the food bank after her. So in us really looking at the food bank, which right is happening right now, but also has this history, we tried in our exhibit to, to have a flow, not only of then and now, but how do we continue to tell the food bank story as it evolves? So we actually worked with our local junkyard and they cut a car in half for us. And we have, so we have half a car in the exhibit. It looks like it's coming out of the wall with the trunk open, filled with food. And we have information and history about the food bank. And then as you turn, we have an area which is really specific for kids to learn about food insecurity. What does it mean to be hungry? And then how can they help their community? And it's really hands-on. They pick up a shopping list. And it'll say on it, whether it's a family of two or a family of four, and they then take their shopping bags and they fill their their food bank bags um, according to the shopping list and then place it at the end of the exhibit. And so it, it really was the first time in this museum that we focused on explaining something that is currently happening to a younger audience. But we also made sure in the exhibit to have an area It looks very much like a cork board, like you would see walking into a food bank that has, you know, information on it. And that's how we decided we would display the information that is evolving and changing. So, for instance, we have the rendering of the new building up there and and we have statistics of how many people they fed last month. And then next month, we'll update that to be able to to show how that's happening. So it's a very long story (laughs) to say that. The evolution of our museum and how we want to evolve is very much in conjunction with our community. And we want to highlight the things happening here while also remembering where we've come from and the lessons that we've learned in the past. Yeah, that's a great strategy. That's very good. Wow. I admire that very much. Thank you. Natasha, it's time for our first break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Experience decades of history in a single day at the Heritage Museum. With something to offer everyone, the museum invites you to explore the rich heritage of Independence, Oregon. Visit the website at www.orheritage.org to learn more. Admission to the Heritage Museum is always free, and they gratefully welcome donations to support their mission. Their doors are open from Tuesday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please note that the museum is closed on Sundays and Mondays. 
Looking for more? At the Heritage Museum, they offer conference room rentals and coffee services. Check it out today. Call them at 503-838-4989 or stop by to explore the excellent exhibits located in the heart of Independence, Oregon at 281 South 2nd Street. You can also reach them via email at orheritage at ci.independence.or.us. Whether you choose to volunteer, donate, or visit, your connection with the Heritage Museum will be a rewarding experience. The Heritage Museum looks forward to welcoming you. Nothing to do? Feeling bored and blue? Well, we've got just the thing for you. Tune into Preservation Oak at preservationoaks.podbean.com and unlock a world of wonders waiting for you. Step into a realm of endless listening pleasure with each and every episode of Preservation Oaks. From fascinating locations to captivating topics and history galore, you'll be hooked from the start and talking about it tomorrow. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. Follow us now at preservationoaks.podbean.com to get notified instantly whenever a new episode drops. That's right. Jump over to preservationoaks.podbean.com and treat yourself to an array of excellent episodes. You'll have an almost inexhaustible supply of great information right at your fingertips. And there's more. Every other week, a brand new episode will drop and grace your ears. Exclusive interviews, intriguing history, and special topics will keep you coming back for more. Find Preservation Oaks on almost every podcast and social media platform worldwide. We bring you unique perspectives, engaging discussions, and everything you need to learn about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. Get ready for an extraordinary listening experience. With interesting guests, captivating topics, fantastic book reviews to aid your family history journey, and special history-focused media creators, you won't be able to stop listening. So, don't wait any longer. Head over to preservationoaks.podbean.com and indulge in the luxury and convenience of dozens of episodes ready for you to enjoy. Preservation Oaks is here to enrich the world and help you to keep on giving and keep on living the good life. Preservation Oaks Podcast, your gateway to history, culture, and fascinating stories. Follow us now at preservationoaks.podbean.com and open the door to a whole new world of knowledge and entertainment. This is Brandon Brown, Executive Director of the Kiowa County Historical Museum and Soda Fountain, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. This is Bill McGrew, President of the Board of Directors at the Indian Creek Historical Society, located in Hastings, Iowa. And I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. This is Ann Rollins from the Old Fort Genealogical Society, and I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. In my first life, I was owned by a business, and a seamstress named Peggy used me every day, all day, and I worked like crazy for Peggy. Then the business closed, and I was inherited by the Webster family, and I worked like a couple of times a month, mostly for patching, but sometimes making dresses. Then, I was put in the basement, replaced by a newer model that used electricity. I lay there for years, collecting dust, 
they sat boxes on me. Finally, they pulled me out of there, and then the scariest thing in my existence happened, they had a discussion about throwing me away. You know, into the trash. Luckily for me they decided to sell me at a garage sale, and I went to Marge. Finally, she donated me to the local historical society. They catalogued me, shined me up, oiled me, and made sure all my parts worked like new. Now, I'm on display for the community to see every day, and they, marvel at the way I work. It took a long time, but I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. 9 out of 10 listeners agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Ms. Natasha Adams from the Heritage Museum in Independence, Oregon. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Natasha. Thank you. You are welcome. Thank you for all the great work you're doing. What are some unique artifacts or exhibits that visitors can expect to see at your museum? You just went over one with the Ella exhibit and teaching kids how to recognize hunger and what to do about it almost immediately. What are some other things that are going on? So when I came on board, it was myself and I'm full-time. And then we have our curator, Amy, who is part-time. And having this daunting task of putting a museum together while also getting to know the person I was going to be working with The strategy that we came up with was to visit a different museum once a week. And so in doing that, it really forced us in a very intense and compact way to look at what museums are currently doing. What do we like about that? And how can we incorporate that into our museum? So when I first arrived, initially, they had had nine areas designated for different exhibits you know, a general store, the post office. And in going to some museums, specifically the Chinatown Museum and the Japanese American Museum, both in Portland, we realized that when you have an area where you're trying to talk about something like a kitchen, the kitchen doesn't have to be functional. You can squish it together and still give a good idea of what things were in the kitchen and how the kitchen was used but it doesn't have to be functional, which is how our things were set up. We They were originally set up. So it would look like this is, if you walked into a kitchen in 1920, this is how it was with these dimensions. And so in learning that lesson and scrunching our exhibits together, we were able to add, I think, nine more than we initially had decided to do. Cool. And so I think what's unusual in our small museum is that we've tried really hard that although we have separate sections, that we try to tell everybody's story within that section. So we don't have Latinx section in our museum. We don't have an LGBTQ plus section in our museum. 
We've tried really hard to incorporate those stories into the areas of our community that we're trying to highlight, which is really hard because we don't have a lot of those stories and a lot of those objects weren't kept. And so it's been really challenging to figure out how do we do that while still, you know, having an integrity in the exhibits that we're presenting. So one of the things that we have, we talk about the Chinese laundry that used to be here. We talk about Governor Pierce. We have his desk at the museum. And prior to my arrival, it was his desk that was on display with a label, something along the lines of, you know, Governor Pierce was governor of Oregon, and he was instrumental in bringing education reform and money to independence. And he gave his desk to the independence elementary school. And that's why we have it. Well, upon further research, it turns out that Governor Pierce was very racist and he became governor by the support of the Ku Klux Klan. And his education reforms were in place because he wanted only white children to be in classrooms together. And so although the money that came to independence from his legislation benefited the community, we were in no way addressing the true history of why that money came here. And so again, being conscious of being in a small community and also being conscious of the fact that there's a lot of information there. How do we convey that information in a factual way without emotion, but also in a way that catches people's interest and in that they're actually going to read it? Because when, you know, it's like, it's that classic, you walk into a museum and there's a panel and it has a million words on it and you just keep walking because it's too intimidating or you don't have the time. Yeah. And so what's been key for us in this scrunching of exhibits is also figuring out how to really succinctly give history of things in our area, but also not straying away from the entirety of that history. Yeah, that's difficult. It is. <laughs> I've seen some of the pictures of the inside of your museum. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Very nice. Now, I ask this question of everyone. If your building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? This is such a hard question. I I think it would be, oh, I'm trying to think. You know, we have a lot of things in our collection that are not one of a kind. They're not unique. We have for instance, a Surrey, and we have an agricultural wagon. But the things that are unique are the people to whom those objects belonged. And so I think I would take the objects that that really have a story and a connection to a specific person. So one of the people, Henry Hill, was one of the founders of Independence, and we actually have his violin. So I think I would probably grab that. <laughs> and then Anything that we haven't digitized, which I think would probably be more than I can carry, but those photographs and documents that we have that could be lost would be really heartbreaking. Yeah, that would. I think you made a good choice with the violin. That's great. <laughs> now, you mentioned the Heritage Museum Society and the fact that they provide some funding for the museum. And I want to ask what kind of funding model supports the museum and what are your funding goals this year? Yeah, so um, in many ways, we're 
we're very fortunate because our museum is technically a city department. So I always make the analogy of the library because people are really familiar with having a library in their community and then a friends of the library organization that helps raise money. And so we're the museum and we have the Heritage Museum Society and they act like the friends of the museum. And so Our funding model is based on the budget that we create along with the rest of the city department. So in good years, our budget goes up, and in not so good years, our budget goes down. But the Heritage Society really helps fill those pieces in. So they have gotten a lot of new members recently, so they're really invigorated, and they're just this amazing group of people that volunteer countless hours but we're all still trying to figure out what's the next big thing we need to raise money for. So because we have the new building and then we raise the money to make all the exhibits, kind of what is that next thing? And for me, again, it goes back to the education component. You know, because we're a city department and and our budget falls within that, one of the things that is really expensive is hiring more staff. Mm. And More and more grants don't pay for people's time anymore. They'll pay for the things to complete a project, but they won't, you can't use the funds to pay for the person to do it. And so we're really looking at how do we raise money, create funds, find income to look at hiring folks that can help us with the education component. You know, I'm not, I'm not a curriculum writer. I'm passionate about history and I can talk to kids about it, but I, I'm not, you know, that's not my strong point. And so really key for us, I think, as we grow is figuring out how to get an education coordinator or someone of that caliber in to help create curriculum and bring more kids through the museum. And that can be incredibly expensive. And and we're all kind of still kind of figuring out how to do that. There's yeah. probably retired teachers out there or or someone like that that could do that job. Yeah, and we have, um, so Monmouth is a city that is right up against us. If if you have never been here, you can't tell uh, where Independence ends and where Monmouth begins. And Monmouth is home of Western Oregon University, and they have lots of students there um, that are studying education. So there's definitely some partnerships that that are itching to be formed as we try to figure out how to do this. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) That's great. Now, the Heritage Museum Society does fundraising activities and has opportunities throughout the year for fundraising for the museum. What kinds Mm -hmm. of fundraising activities do they plan and, and carry out? Yeah, so our gift shop is run by the society. So they work with me to figure out what items to have in the gift shop. My biggest thing is always that somehow it has to relate to something in the building. So all the money made at the store is money that they save if the museum needs money. The Nosferatu evening event that's coming up is something that they're doing. And then other than that, they're really spending a lot of time right now getting the word out that the museum is here. Like I mentioned, many of their members are new. I'd say within the last year, they have eight new board members out of a board of 13. So they too are still, I think, trying to figure out how they can support the museum while also using their volunteer time at at its most efficient. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But they also support the museum with their time. So 
Many of the society members help us at the front desk or help us with some of our archival goals that we're trying to do. So they they don't solely focus on raising money. They they do a lot of other things as well that that help us in different ways. Oh, very cool. You're lucky to have them. That's great. Oh yeah, I couldn't do what we do without them. Now, I read you have an ongoing program to recognize veterans. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we partner with the American Legion Post 33, and they are a group in town that recognize veterans. Our Vietnam Veterans Memorial is actually the oldest west of the Mississippi, and there there's quite a lot of history that correlates with that memorial. And and it actually, when I was mentioning that there was the revitalization downtown, the memorial was actually moved at one point, and that, that was quite a contentious issue. But the folks that are working together now, they try to recognize veterans who have passed. They try to do it monthly, but it's very much folks reaching out to them saying, I'd like you to recognize my dad or my mom or you know my family member. And so what they do is they come down to the museum and they meet and then they walk down to the uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which is just a block away, and they raise a flag in honor of the veteran. And then they come back to the museum for a reception. And then once the flag has been there for a month, they take it down and give the flag to the family. And so we recognize the veterans on our website. Obviously, we're providing the space for them to do that. And what, what's key, I think, to point out as well, that although the memorial is for Vietnam veterans, they, they recognize all veterans. And we actually have a, a pretty large exhibit in our museum that focuses on our, our local veterans. Yeah. Do you have a big veteran population in the area? We do. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Natasha, I understand that there are historical panels across town that people can view. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, so downtown we have um, a very iconic fountain. And then past the fountain are these big pillars that lead to stairs that take you down into our amphitheater. And um, those pillars have, again, metal, thin metal panels attached to them that talk about different aspects of, of our community from the Kalapuya that live here through some of the history of some of our festivals. We have some panels that are down by the river that talk about the ferries that used to be here. And we actually just got a grant to install five more. Um, And these panels will go more throughout town, not just central downtown. And those are going to be placed in areas where there were historic buildings that are no longer there to kind of talk about what used to be there and, and why it's not there anymore. Fantastic. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, a lot of a lot of museums and historical societies do that. And it's really great to come into a town and see those as a tourist. It, you just stop and read them, you know, it's just great. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, those tend to be things that you can get grants for as well, which I think is is key, right? There's so much work that museums want to do. And we, generally speaking, I think it's fair to say, always have tight budgets. When it comes to those types of things that better the community in a very tangible way, there are always lots of grants out there for that. So, yeah. so we, we try to go after those types of things. What kinds of historical artifacts has the museum received as donations from the public? Um, so this is one of my favorite stories, and it just happened to us in the last month. We have this really amazing photography collection from Albert Clinton Moore. 
And Mr. Moore was really into photography and he was way ahead of his time when it came to capturing candid photos of his family. You know, when you think about like the 1910s and we look at photos from that time period, they're always very stoic and they're sitting very still because of the equipment. But he he captured a lot of pictures inside his home, outside his home of his children. And those glass plate negatives were donated to the museum a very long time ago. And we we developed them. So we have just these amazing photographs. And as museums do, we like to show off our collections sometimes. So um, one of my favorite photographs in the collection is of this little girl sitting in the grass with her cute little jacket on and she's playing with baby chickens. And so I posted that on our Facebook page and said, you know, we have this great photography collection. And one of his relatives that still lives in town that we didn't know lived here contacted us and said, that's my grandmother in the picture. And I have the outfit she's wearing, um, which still gives me goosebumps. So Rosemary and Elizabeth, who are sisters, came in to the museum and they brought one of their nieces with them. And they just brought boxes of things that their family had kept, many of which were the outfits that the folks are wearing in the photographs. And that's just something that is so rare. You know, the Smithsonian would <laughs> would would kill to have that type of a collection. And uh, I'm I'm so grateful that we get to take care of it now. But it was just one of those really silly, you know, we'll post it on Facebook and it has just cascaded into this amazing relationship with this family. And they continue to bring things in as they find them in their home. And they just have the most detailed stories, their family clearly are into history. Their mother's wedding dress is one of the items they brought in. And it's not just her wedding dress, but her mother left a note with it as to where she purchased the dress and who the seamstress was, which are not things that people usually think to keep. Yeah, you got to remember, these were the days before Walmart and before you could just walk in and buy something off a rack, right? Yeah, this is, you know, 1920s. and it and it's not just her wedding dress; it's all of it. It's the undergarments, it's the veil, it's so it's it's just really it still gives me goosebumps, and I I get still a little emotional about it because it was such a a funny way to to connect, and now we're we're continuing to to talk about their family, and we're actually working towards creating some videos about their family and the artifacts that we have at the museum now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you said it right. You're very honored to have that. That's great. Wow. (laughs) Do you have any strategy for digitization of documents and photos? We do. So (laughs) I'm really good at finding things online that are on sale. And so when I first started here, we were already digitizing, but it was very much the flatbed scanner where you lift it up, you put in the picture, you close it down, you wait for it to make the crazy noise, and then it scans your picture and you move on. And, and digitizing in that way just takes so much time. And especially if a staff member is doing it, it's taking time away from something else they could be doing. So I spent quite some time researching and looking for different ways to scan documents. We also have a really large collection of historic newspapers that have not been digitized anywhere else. And so we spent a little bit of money 
but really minimal compared to the grand scheme of things to buy different types of scanners. And now anytime we have an intern who is interested, we show them the, the different things that need digitizing and then work with them to create a project. So we have quite a few interns that come through the museum and, and having been an intern myself decades ago, um, I think it's really key for them to be a part of whatever project they're working on. Mm -hmm. And so we always try to have two or three different options for them. And then they get to choose which of those two to three projects interest them. And we then train them in how to, to accomplish that project. For the most part, it is something around digitization because that is the thing that we need to do most. We, we have so many photographs and documents that still are not digitized. We actually work with an organization called the Easter Seals, and they have a program where they work with adults who are 55 and older who are trying to get back into the workforce. The Easter Seals pays them, but for us, they're considered volunteers. Oh, cool. And we, yeah, we have two Easter Seals right now, and they each work 20 hours a week. So having them scanning things and digitizing things has put us, I mean, really years and years ahead of our goal. And that has been a really great partnership. So when we have the Easter Seals and interns primarily focusing on the digitization, we're really starting to make some headway which then will go onto our website. You know, we're digitizing because we want to share the information. It'd also be great if we can figure out a way to identify the people in all these pictures. You know, I think that's every museum's dying wish is to <laughs> be able to identify all the people. Yeah. But once you can put things online, you know, you can reach out to folks a little bit easier. Are you using past perfect software? No. So we were using past perfect and when I arrived here, Past Perfect felt so old to me and it just didn't feel user-friendly and it could only be on one computer. Yeah. So we actually switched to Catalog It, which is a cloud-based system. Yeah. And we love it. It has been an amazing experience transferring our collection to that. And then I can access it on my phone. So mm -hmm. um, I can be in a meeting and, and look up our collection if I need to, which is great. That's very nice. Wow. Now, yeah, you are ahead of the curve them. in some respects because you have both online exhibits and online collections. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about those? You know, we have rotating exhibits and we have one area that's relatively small. And every two months or so, we create a very small mini exhibit. And, and for me, the philosophy is if we're going to spend the time doing that, then we might as well figure out how to also put it online, especially because we only have it on display for such a short time. But we also, as we partner with local organizations, one of the exhibits we have online is a youth art show. And that's something we started last year. We have the Community Services Consortium organization in town, and they help young adults gain job skills. Often also in the process, those folks earn their GED. And so I reached out to them and said, hey, you know, we don't really do a lot of art at the museum. I'd love to figure out how to start having an annual art show. But I would like to also figure out if your youth decide to do this, how can we sell that art and give them that experience and those skills of figuring out not only how to display art, but how do you value something that you've created yourself and, of course, love? 
So we we do it in conjunction with Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So we we do it in January. So last year the theme was Dream, Believe, Do, and they created all different sorts of art that fell within the theme. And we had it on display, and we had a reception for them, and they came with their families. And we made sure to put those online again to give them that experience, but also the artwork was really fantastic and I think deserves to be out there. Yeah, absolutely. I took a look at that. There's some really uh, wonderful budding talent there. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, you're doing some great work. Thanks. Does your museum capture oral interviews? So we do. I would say prior to my arrival, we were better at that. We had some volunteers where that was really their passion to compensate for the fact that we've sort of slowed down in that a little bit. We actually have a new project that we're working on right now. We had a local who was throwing away their sauna and bear with me here. (laughs) So it's a beautiful wooden box with a wooden bench in it and a glass door and the heating element broke and is no longer replaceable. And And so I said, well, you know what, we'll take it at the museum. And everyone looked at me like I was losing my mind. But what we're going to do with it is turn it into a sound booth. So the sauna is fully wired. It has lights. It's not going to be difficult. So we just have raised enough money. We're in the process now of buying the sound equipment. So what will happen is we have this very private booth. And folks will comfortably be able to sit one, two, if they know each other real well. And they'll be able to sit in there and just push a button and it will start recording and they can talk. And then when they push the button again, the recording will end. So I'm fully aware we're going to get a lot of uh, little kid giggles and probably some jokes. (laughs) But I think we will also capture the stories that we don't know about. And that really is, is the goal, right? Is we don't know what we don't know. And when someone comes into the museum and says, you know, my mom used to pick hops and they say, oh, that's really great. Now we can say, well, why don't you go sit in the sound booth and tell us more about that? They can do that. And I think it'll be a really unique way to start capturing some of our community's stories. Wow. That's such a great idea. I've not, <laughs> not ever heard that before. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. I hope you get something fantastic. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Wow. With all the great work the museum and the Museum Society is doing in Independence, Oregon, you must have some really fantastic volunteers for sure. What kinds of volunteer opportunities does the museum have? You know, if you're willing to do it, we probably have a task. What is great about our volunteers is that they trust and believe in what we're doing here. So I'm also part of the Independence Downtown Association, and that organization helps to beautify downtown and bring folks to the the local businesses. And in doing that, we host a festival every year, uh, the Hop and Heritage Festival, which we just had September 16th. And I helped with it as part of the museum, but it's not a museum event. But the volunteers at the museum and the society really understand how crucial the connections are between us and our community. And so when we needed volunteers for the Hop and Heritage Festival, they all jumped at the opportunity. And I had two gentlemen that were crossing guards for eight hours, helping people cross the street. 
and anything from sweeping up the hops at the end of the day to, to doing some demonstrations for visitors. So, you know, from sitting at the front desk to leading tours to calling, we do a lot of phone calls to retirement communities to have them come visit. They really do all of those things. And, and we're really lucky in that our core group of volunteers just have this really extensive base of knowledge and ability so that I can send out that email and that says, I don't know how to do this or we need this. And inevitably, one of them will will come to the rescue. And uh, we're very, very fortunate to have that. Wow, cool. I understand you put a lot of hours in at the Hops Festival. Yes, I do. It is probably in the top three favorite days of the year for me. And it's a festival I'm really passionate about. And uh, it, it really, again, is it really highlights that spirit of independence. We it, the, the whole festival is put on by volunteers. We have over 20 people that help put this community festival together. And it really functions the way a festival should in that all of these people that want to help have a small part that they accomplish. But then when you put it all together, we have this incredible festival for our community to celebrate the agricultural history and, you know, beer and kids. We have a soda garden as well as a beer garden because Oregon not only makes beer, but uh, Oregon is also known for making sodas. And so oh. we have all of that donated and, and really try to highlight the joy that is our community. Yeah, it sounds like volunteering is a is really a lot of fun. Yeah, and a lot of residents here do that. Uh, the this community is is very steeped in volunteerism. Very cool. Can you tell us about any partnerships or collaborations the museum has with other state, county, or regional organizations? Yeah, we work with the Western Oregon University. Specifically, we've worked with Jim and Amy Dawson. They are in the biology department. So in April, we unveiled a temporary exhibit that we had created. So because we're on the river, we have osprey. And we actually have an osprey camera at one of the nests. And so in anticipation of that, we put together this osprey exhibit. And of course, because we don't do things like everybody else, um, instead of just having your, your uh, panels up about the Osprey, we worked with a local comic book artist. And the majority of the exhibit was one very large comic strip that highlighted the different facts and, you know, the way Osprey live in this comic strip. And because I knew the biology department did quite a bit of work with Raptors, I reached out to them and it really created this amazing partnership. And Jim and Amy brought in a Raptor for kids to meet and learn about. And within the month of April, we had um, over eight school groups come in because word got out that if you came to the museum, <laughs> not only did you get to see this giant comic strip, but you got to meet uh, Raptor. And, nice. and they really spent so much time to come down and talk to school-age kids with, with one of their raptors. So that that's a partnership that has been really great. And, and it also allows kids to learn a little bit about the university and, and, and what that looks like. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. We also partner with um, Oregon State University and the Food Hero Program. So 
when we decided to do the um, food bank exhibit, we reached out to them. So in conjunction with that exhibit opening, we're actually offering some workshops uh, where folks can learn different ways to budget and cook food. And so we have some cooking workshops that are happening over the next couple of months, and that is in partnership with them. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's the local school district that we work with and the Independence Downtown Association. And um, we also have a great relationship with the Oregon Historical Society. They have um, a plethora of traveling exhibits that actually they were able to get grants to make them free for museums. So we rely on that resource pretty heavily. And, and we have, I would say, four to five of their exhibits in our museum on an annual basis. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I want to switch gears just a little and talk about your museum's website. Okay. I want to tell folks how to get there. You can get to the museum's website at www.orheritage.org. And I want to know what kinds of things are available to do on your website. Yeah, so um, we have some of our exhibits online. Uh, we always have all the information of all the events that are coming up at the museum, along with exhibits that will be opening. Our part of our museum store is online, so you can find um, things that are unique to independence, from magnets to baseball caps, those types of things. And then, of course, the society has a really great section online where folks can make donations. So that was one of the first things we did when we moved locations was update our website to be able to do more things technologically. So, you know, we love it when folks come in with cash or a check, but for many, it's much easier to donate online. So uh, that is part of our website as well. Something that's unique about your website that I haven't seen too many organizations do is you can donate in various categories, like you $25 donation, you become a part of the hazelnut category and then fifty dollars you become a sunstone a hundred dollars you become willamette hops yep. category again right because we will never give up an opportunity to educate all of our donation levels are things that are unique to oregon so the sunstone for instance is a stone that you can only find in oregon um and i then, don't even course, know what that is um it it's a Oh, now I'm going to, it's a clear, it almost looks like a diamond, but it's yellow and it's not as hardy as a diamond, but um, you can only find it in Oregon. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I'll look it up. Thank you for that. So yeah, the website's pretty cool. You definitely check it out. You can find the organization also on Facebook under Independence Heritage Museum. And you can find the Heritage Museum Society at Heritage Museum Society. You can visit the museum at 281 South 2nd Street in Independence, Oregon. You can phone them at 503-838-4989. You can email them at orheritage at ci.independence.or.us. And admission to the Heritage Museum is always free and donations are gratefully accepted. The museum is open Tuesday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and they're closed on Sunday and Mondays. All right, can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the museum that you want people in, of your area to know about and support? 
Yeah, one of the biggest things that we're trying to work on, and it goes in conjunction with the sound booth that we've created, there's an organization called StoryCorps. Um, they are a nonprofit that collects oral histories, and they uh, were founded in 2003. They're, they are national, and every story they collect is actually housed at the U.S. Library of Congress. Anyone who listens to NPR probably knows about them. They they share stories on there, I think, on Fridays. Yeah, I've heard of but, them. Yeah. So in us creating this sound booth, um, we reached out to them to see what partnerships there are available. And they have phenomenal partnerships that come with quite the price tag. So one of the partnerships that we really are trying to pursue, they come to the community, they train 10 people most of which for us would be volunteers, on how to collect oral histories. They also bring in equipment that is mobile. And then they have a big launch event in your community to get people excited about StoryCorps. And then for the following year, as you collect stories, those all go to StoryCorps and are then housed for forever in the Library of Congress. But that's it's over $30,000 to do that. So for us, Collecting oral histories is really important. And I think that partnership in particular will allow us to, to get the training that we need to do it properly, but also to really preserve the stories of our community in a way that hasn't been done before. So it's sort of a pie in the sky um, wish and dream. But um, as we start fundraising more and more, that's definitely something we're looking at. It's a lofty goal. Well worth it. What's yeah. the age yeah. in your organization or in your community? What, you know, are there people who would have that older oral history background? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. That's a great goal. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Natasha, it's time for a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Recall that sense of wonder when you first discovered something truly captivating from the past? The Heritage Museum is dedicated to rekindling that fascination by bringing history back to life. Their mission is to collect and share the rich tapestry of natural history and diverse cultural heritage woven into the Willamette River community of Independence, Oregon. To learn more, visit their website at www.orheritage.org. Admission to the Heritage Museum is always free, and they warmly welcome donations to further their noble cause. Their doors are open from Tuesday through Thursday, inviting you in from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and on Fridays and Saturdays, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's important to note that the museum is closed on Sundays and Mondays. If you're seeking more, the Heritage Museum extends its hospitality with conference room rentals and coffee services. Explore these opportunities today. You can reach out to them by dialing 503-838-4989 or 
Better yet, embark on a journey through their splendid exhibits nestled in the heart of Independence, Oregon, at 281 South 2nd Street. Should you prefer, you can always send them an email at orheritage at ci.independence.org.us. Whether you choose to volunteer, donate, or visit, your connection with the Heritage Museum will be a worthwhile experience. Start your exploration today. You'll be glad you did. When so much of history is about the big moments, it's the details stored and preserved in cultural, genealogical, historical societies and museums throughout the United States that makes the stories about the people and events of those times truly unique and enjoyable. With each episode of Preservation Oaks, you have an adventure where history comes to life. You can take pleasure in knowing more about these trusted American organizations, like how they're funded, how volunteers can help, their essential value to your community, and the joy and education they give back. No detail is overlooked at Preservation Oaks. Visit preservationoaks.podbean.com today, where great adventures are presented in every episode. Ah, history. The aroma is like rich farm soil or a familiar old book, the flavor bold and decadent, the touch divine. And the stories? Yes, the stories are luxury simply defined. Introducing Preservation Oaks, a program featuring museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. If you think you're familiar with the stories of history, you haven't experienced listening to Preservation Oaks, the program that invites you to experience each unique episode featuring professionals from these essential organizations. Select any episode from wherever you get your podcasts, then sit back and enjoy the luxury of history. No worries, because the enjoyment's on us. And now, before the next show starts, let's enjoy an intermission. You'll find our snack bar chock full of good things to eat and drink. Tasty, tempting hot dogs, thirst-quenching soft drinks, fresh, crunchy popcorn, a complete assortment of delicious candy, and a full line of cigarettes. You've plenty of time, so visit the snack bar now. A tasty treat will double your enjoyment of the show. For your convenience, we shall keep you informed of the remaining intermission time, three minutes before the next show starts. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. The next show will start in two minutes. Yes, Toddy, the chocolate malt in a can. It's so good hot. It's so good cold. It hits the spot with young and old. Yes, toddy pleases everybody. Delicious chocolate malted toddy made with rich, real milk, not powdered milk. So come and get it, everybody. It's time to drink your chocolate toddy. Just a minute, folks. Yes, that's all it takes to visit our refreshment counter in the lobby. There you'll find popcorn and an assortment of popular candy bars to please every taste. Try one of these delicious candy bars. Big time. 
butternut, milkshake, payday. Topped with Hollywood's super rich coating of the kind you like best. They taste wonderful. They're delicious. They're nutritious. Get one at our confection counter in the lobby now. The next show will start in one minute. And now, back to Preservation Oak. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Ms. Natasha Adams from the Heritage Museum in Independence, Oregon, a beautiful place of the country. Let's pick up where we left off. Welcome back, Natasha. Glad to be here. And I'm so glad you're here. I've learned <laughs> so much. Thank you. Why is the museum important to the community and what makes your organization different or unique from others? I think we're important because we really are trying just incredibly hard to, again, tell those stories that have gone untold. One of the things that I think makes us unique, because we're part of the city, we have some resources available to us that a lot of other smaller heritage museums maybe don't. Part of that is we have a great communications department. And within that, we have a great videographer. And so we've been working with him to create a monthly curator's corner. And it's a video that's three to seven minutes long. And generally it focuses on a place. And we then talk to people that are somehow linked to that place. And that's something that that we really love doing. And it's a way to share parts of our community with folks that, that aren't within the walls or confines of our museum. So we have a historic building that recently was in, in great disarray that went up for sale and a, a local purchased it and she's been renovating it. And so in a small town like anywhere else, everyone's sort of guessing what it looks like inside and the work that she may be doing. So our curator, Amy, reached out to her and, and we did a video about the history of that building, but also what it's looking like now and what the owner's goals are for the building moving forward. Nice. So. I think that's something that is different that we do that I don't think many others do. Yeah, that's very cool. You definitely have a unique organization there and you're doing some great work. I also was reading that you have other services that the museum offers. 
in in conference rooms and things like that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we have a conference room, which is kind of fancy. You know, it's got a carpet and we have tables and chairs. So we rent that out to folks. If it's a nonprofit, then we don't charge them. So we have quite a few community meetings that happen at the museum, many of which often turns out those folks have never been in the building. So I love that because it it gets folks through the door that maybe wouldn't otherwise. Along with that, if they rent a conference room, we can offer them coffee, just very basic. Uh, We also have a classroom in the back of our museum that folks can use. It has a big garage door. It's technically the loading dock, but we don't load things very often. So we converted it into an area where we can have a classroom and and do workshops. But that's also a space that folks can, can utilize in the community. And then finally, when folks are doing research, we're happy to help them. You know, we we get quite a few emails on a weekly basis asking about historic homes or family members, and we help folks the best we can. Generally, we start with helping them find the resources. Again, wanting to educate. I think it's key to help people understand how to do the research themselves. And then if they're still struggling with that, we can do that research, although we do charge for the time to do that. Oh, very cool. Is there any other information or message you'd like the community to know about? I consider myself so fortunate to get to walk into this building every day. I went to school to work at museums, and there are so many people out there that spend their time getting an education and then not finding the opportunity for which they got that education. And so being a part of this community and being a part of this museum really is just one of the best things ever. (laughs) And Having the passion to do this really has allowed me to work directly with the community. I think anytime you work with someone, when you can tell they love their job and they're committed to helping the folks around them, that it becomes easier to work together. And so I think the biggest thing for me is really making sure that people understand how much this museum is part of the community, wants to be part of the community, and wants to be a catalyst for positive change within the community. Yeah, you're doing a fantastic job, and you're the right person there. You're you're really embedded in that community. Reflecting just a bit, how do you think your volunteers and the community view you and the museum in terms of benefit and value? You know, I know that the American Alliance of Museums has this statistic on their website, and it's that 96% of Americans trust museums. And I think about that every day and how important it is to make sure that the information we convey is well-researched, is factual, and is inclusive of everyone who's part of that story. So my hope is that the community views this museum as a, a place for the community to gather, as a place where you could potentially come and mend some bridges and as a place that's going to make you think a little bit about things that that maybe you hadn't considered before. Thank you very much, Natasha. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you spending time with us today. The museum is really a huge asset to your community in Independence, Oregon, in a lot of different ways. One of them is fostering community partnerships, which is is seems to me to be doing great. Another is preserving the history of Independence, Oregon for its residents. And I just want to say, nice job. I'm really glad to meet you. Thank you. 
And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Natasha Adams, the director of the Heritage Museum located in Independence, Oregon. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap up, which is coming up next. You know, I have a deep appreciation for this podcast, and one of the reasons is the continuous learning that comes from it, and the other is the kick I get as I talk to these remarkable, passionate, and intelligent individuals who serve as the bedrock of preservation in our communities across the nation. Natasha Adams stands as an exemplary figure that anyone would take pride in emulating. As you listen to this episode, you'll quickly learn why. Her roll-up-your-sleeves attitude also permeates independence's culture, a true delight to discover. This quote from Natasha sums it up for me. She said, I think the biggest thing for me is really making sure that people understand how much this museum is part of the community and wants to be a part of the community and wants to be a catalyst for positive change within the community. Well, let's take a moment to explore the positive transformations that the Heritage Museum is fostering within the community. Number one, the museum collaborates to offer cooking classes for local residents. Number two, the museum has a partnership with the local American Legion to acknowledge and honor veterans. The museum takes great efforts to educate the community about the significance and heritage of the food bank, recognizing signs of those in need and how community members can help to maximize its positive impact for those in need. The museum is supporting young adults pursuing their GEDs and also being budding artists by facilitating their participation in an annual formal art show which for them is an irreplaceable experience. They get to do art. They get to understand what it means to put a value on the art that they create. And they get to have that formal experience of selling their art or showing their art and being appreciated. That's really good. The museum is fostering community understanding of the natural history of the area with an osprey cam and a live osprey at the museum in collaboration with the local college. The museum is helping the community to get to know the area better by creating the Curator's Corner YouTube videos, and I hope you go find them on YouTube. The museum, in collaboration with a local comic strip artist, crafted a large format comic strip detailing the osprey's natural life cycle, which is on display in the museum. The museum is transforming a used sauna into a sound booth, allowing museum visitors to record oral histories at their convenience. The museum is partnering with Easter Seals to engage community members who are re-entering the workforce and dedicating 20 hours a week to digitizing the document collection. The museum 
is conducting extensive educational outreach with school children, enriching their understanding of independence and Oregon's history. I have no doubt that Natasha will eventually forge connections with the local First Nations as her dedication to telling factual historical narratives is inclusive of all perspectives. A priority that Natasha stated for the museum is trying to secure an agreement with StoryCorps, that's storycorps.org, S-T-O-R-Y-C-O-R-P-S.org, to collect and archive oral interviews from independent citizens, making them permanently available in the Library of Congress. The community's share of this endeavor is $30,000, which translates to roughly $10 per working adult in independence. A meaningful contribution, I'd say. I hope you can all make this happen. Don't forget to explore the museum's Curator Corner YouTube videos and keep an eye out for upcoming events. This museum always has something new and exciting for both children and adults. This year's Ghost Walk promises to be even better with the addition of a Hearst Car Show introduced by Natasha. Moreover, on October 20th, the Heritage Museum Society is hosting a truly unique event playing the Nosferatu movie. I think that thing was made in, I think, 1922, maybe 1926. Anyway, in the early 20s, this movie Nosferatu with this totally totally unique individual. I don't think he was really acting. I think this was how this dude was. But this silent movie was made, and what the Heritage Museum Society is doing on October 20th is a really unique event that they're playing the Nosferatu movie, and they're having someone play the score of the original movie live on an organ accompanying the movie. Now, for all of you in Independence and the area around Independence, this is an opportunity to experience how movies were enjoyed during the silent film era, which was about 1890s to early 1930s. I think the first talkie movie was introduced in 1927, but there was a period of transition from uh, silent films to talkies. So it wasn't just one day you were, you know, making silent films and the next day you were making talkies. It was a period of after 1927 when the first talkie came in, then it was a period of transition. So anyway, on October 20th, I hope that you're able to attend this Heritage Museum Society Nosferatu movie with live organ music accompaniment going to be a pretty special thing. I'd also like to extend my congratulations to the Heritage Museum Society, whose mission involves volunteering, fundraising, and promotion to support the museum. Natasha mentioned the addition of several new board members, and I wish the board much success in their mission, as it holds a lot of importance. The Heritage Museum of Independence, Oregon, is undeniably one of our nation's preservation oaks. It's evident that the Independence Heritage Museum plays an integral role in the independence community and enjoys significant support from its citizens. 
With so many commendable initiatives underway, I'm sure there's something I've overlooked. I encourage you to connect with the Heritage Museum Society and contribute to the Heritage Museum of Independence, Oregon today. Natasha provided detailed insights into where the funds are allocated and what the priorities are. Collaboration and active involvement from everybody are keys to success. And I know you all know that in Independence, Oregon. So please roll up your sleeves and join in. One last time, the contact information for the museum. Their website is www.orheritage.org. You can find them on Facebook at Independence Heritage Museum. You can find the Heritage Museum Society on Facebook at Heritage Museum Society. Go on down and take a look at the museum and spend time there with you and your kids at 281 South 2nd Street in Independence, Oregon. You can call them at 503-838-4989. You can email them at orheritage at ci.independence.or.us. Admission to the Heritage Museum is always free. Donations are gratefully accepted. The museum is open Tuesday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Friday and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and closed on Sunday and Monday. Don't forget to take a look at the Heritage Museum Curator's Corner videos on YouTube. I believe they're listed under the City of Independence, Oregon. All right, if questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the museum via the contact information I just provided. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the museum is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Feet Music, Track Tribe, and Cymbal Bird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, please hang in there and keep on giving and keep on living the good life. <laughs>